Jonah chapter 4. Can you believe it? We are breaking into this last chapter, Jonah chapter 4. I want to encourage you in this season of Lent to respond to the call of the Spirit who calls us to bring our pain, our suffering, our wounds, our heartbreak, bring it home to the Father and allow Him to bring forth fruitfulness even in those things, even in those seeds of our lives. That we see that modeled. And we read the Scripture earlier from Matthew 4, uh, Jesus' days in the wilderness as He gave His life even to suffer, to be broken, to struggle, and how out of that an incredible fruitfulness came forth and still comes forth. You, you and I, are, our very lives are evidence of that. And so we are called to model that as well. So whatever, whatever it may be of suffering, wound, hurt, struggle, pain, heartbreak, agony, we bring it to Him in this season and we say, Father, as only You can by Your Spirit bring forth fruitfulness out of this. Uh, out of these things we don't understand, out of these things we don't have all the answers for, we don't have them all figured out, we don't know why we're even dealing with some of this stuff we're dealing with in our lives, but we thank you that you are faithful and you bring forth fruitfulness even out of this. Yeah? Amen? You're not so sure. Well, I pray the Lord brings us to that confidence. Matthew 4, or sorry, Jonah 4. Jonah 4, chapter 4, in your Bibles. And we're looking at verses 1 to 4 today. Our assignment is simply titled this, Heart Storms. Will you say that with me? Heart Storms. Heart Storms. We're going to see... Uh, again, Jonah's struggle and how God seeks to bring fruitfulness out of it, uh, just as He does in our lives. Heart storms. Holy Spirit, as we read Your Word and pull up a chair around Your table to feed and study and examine Your Word and allow Your Word to examine us and read us, and speak into our lives. I pray that you would find in this room a company of open-hearted people to receive everything that you have for us today. That we might then uh, incarnate your word. That your word would take on life and flesh in us. That we would live it. That we would go from this place saying, what must we do to live this now? And Holy Spirit, would you enable and empower us to do so? In Jesus' strong name, hallelujah, amen. Jonah 4, 1 to 4. Are you there? If you don't have a Bible, perhaps uh, someone will share theirs with you. If you notice someone doesn't have a Bible, perhaps you can share yours. If you need a Bible, let us know. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's really putting it mild. Jonah was ticked off in these words. He, he was furious. 
because of what God was doing. In fact, Jonah considered it downright evil what God was doing in sparing the Ninevites. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this... Is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That verse right there is a recurring refrain all throughout the Old Testament. For, for all of the, the miscomprehension of God, particularly the God of the Old Testament being a God who is angry and wrathful and all of these images that we have so misguidedly come to embrace, really the truth of it is in this refrain right here that we see repeated again and again all throughout the Old Testament. And Jonah Jonah acknowledges that. He says, For I knew, I knew that you are gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. He's got a death wish. That's how peeved he is. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Of all the books of the Bible, Jonah has the most unexpected and overlooked final chapter. Most people have heard the story of Jonah in one form or another, but they think of it as ending at Jonah's repentance and his release from the great fish. In our minds, that's kind of where the story ends. A smaller number of people may be able to tell you that the story goes on and that Jonah obediently went and preached successfully to Nineveh. Almost everyone thinks the story ends right there. After Jonah goes, he's obedient. He preaches. Yet, there is a final startling episode in which the actual and real lessons of the entire narrative, the entire story, are revealed. And if we miss this, then we, we've missed it all, really. Because in this last chapter that we're going to spend some time around, everything that God is seeking to teach and reveal in this story is all brought together. We see happening here this incredible meltdown of Jonah. The breakdown, the collapse of Jonah. As we've already considered, Assyria 
was the greatest power in the world at this time and the cruelest. As we looked at near the beginning of this series, some of the, the graphic ways and how cruel they were. And it, it's understandable that at first, Jonah did not want to go and preach in its capital city of Nineveh. Yet, when he finally did go and did announce God's coming judgment of giving them over to their own evil behavior, there was this massive repentance of sorts where social reform began to happen. It wasn't a complete turning to Yahweh, but social reform took place. And, and even that appealed to the mercy of the Lord. Even though the nature of this repentance and turning away from evil was just that, more of a social reform, nonetheless, God who is merciful and compassionate in response, who is so gracious and slow to anger, who's abounding in steadfast, unfailing love, eager to relent and not punish, this is the God of the Old Testament, He grants them a reprieve, and He did not permit the city to be overthrown and destroyed. It was nothing short of astonishing. Many modern readers of the story of Jonah today respond to the story with skepticism. We are cynics, aren't we? Generally speaking, in this day and age, we are quick to believe accounts of mass violence. But it's harder to believe that the various classes of people of a great city would unite and agree to turn away from living lives of injustice. It's harder to believe that that happened. Really? The violence? So we're quick to believe that. Even now with this coronavirus going on in our midst, we're, we're quick to believe all of the, the negativity around it. We're slow to believe the statements that are made that those being affected by it in China right now are actually becoming less and less. Well, really? Like we, we, we're, we're typically given to be cynical and skeptical, generally speaking. And so is the case here in this story. Quick to believe the violent aspect of it, slow to believe that all of these various classes of people in such a great city would unite in response to the word of the Lord and agree to turn away from living lives of injustice. But that's what happened. And it's astonishing. As astonishing as it is, it's exactly what happened. It shows us that the Word of God is more powerful and transformative than we can imagine. So this would lead us to expect, beloved, that the book would end in chapter 3. On a note of triumph. Woo! With 
and Jonah returned to his homeland rejoicing. End of story. But instead, events take an unexpected turn for us, for the reader. This change of plans, as we read together in the text at hand today, greatly upset Jonah, and he became, verse 1, very angry. Our last episode closed with the Ninevites turning away from evil. This episode opens with Jonah's heart furiously burning with evil. The Hebrew, the original in, in the Hebrew reads literally, and it was evil to Jonah, and evil great, and it burned in him. What, what's going on here is something more than mere displeasure. He finds that the time fuse does not work on the prophetic bomb that he planted in Nineveh. What God did was so terribly evil to Jonah that he is now a burning pyre of anger. He cannot stomach Yahweh's cheapening His mercy by offering it freely to all, especially the likes of the Ninevites. And the reaction is shocking and inexplicable. I mean, do artists get angry when they are given a standing ovation at the Queen Elizabeth Theater? Why then, when Jonah has just preached such a bell ringer to the toughest crowd of his life, and they have received the message and responded positively down to the last person, why would he have a meltdown in furious rage? I mean, they, preachers die for this kind of response. Jonah gets it, and he's ticked off. This was not the new Jonah who followed from being the signpost pointing to Nineveh, but it's a reversion of the old Jonah, the old man who ran away from God's will and service. What exactly was Jonah's problem? I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. There's a theological problem going on here that we need to recognize. And in verse 2, if you look at it with me, Jonah says, O oh Lord, didn't I say before, didn't I tell you, God? Isn't this, see, I told you. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this? This is Jonah's, I told you so. That is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew, God, I knew. 
I knew that you are merciful and compassionate. You're slow to get angry and you're filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. And, and as I, I said a moment ago, this statement holds the status of a creed in ancient Israel. A, a creed that applies not simply to Israel, but to all that God has made, according to Psalm 145. The essence of this confession right here in Jonah's words is the affirmation of the priority of grace for God. The priority of grace in all God's dealings with His creatures indiscriminately. And, and Jonah, he did not disagree with the creed of grace in principle. His problem is that God is too loose and too lenient in His practice of it. Ironically, in light of Jonah's own track record, Jonah doesn't feel this way concerning the exercise of this same grace toward him. That he himself is still alive because of this grace that is making him so furious. How many... Know that God's grace is not the possession of a certain elect group of people. It's not at their disposal to do with and to dispense with as they see fit. God's grace is something which they too are freely given without any merit on their part. God's grace is freely given to us. And we are not to be upset about how freely it is given to others as well. So it's at this point in the story, at the heart of Israel's understanding of her faith, at this very creed, the point of this creed, God, you are unfailing in love. You are compassionate. You, are, you, you, are, you desire to, to relent in any kind of wrath being poured out if, if people will just respond, if your creation will respond to you. And it's at this very point, loved ones, at the very heart of Israel's understanding of her faith, that we are now let in on the argument that was ongoing between Jonah and God all along. We get hints of it in chapter 1, but it's not fully disclosed to us in chapter 1, this conversation, this argument that's going on between Jonah and God. Verses 2 and 3 give us a brief sample. But it's not too difficult to imagine the rest of it. Verses 2 and 3 of the text at hand today do not give us the full detailed account of this argument. 
but they disclose enough to us that we can begin to piece it together. Jonah's conversation, his dialogue with God. God, I just knew you might do something like this. <laughs> How many of you have ever said that to anybody? I just knew you would. I just knew. I told you so. I saw this coming. I called it. These people are evil. Gentiles. And they only changed because they were scared. They didn't convert to you. They didn't start worshiping you. They merely promised to start changing. And you bestow mercy on them for that. It's good that you are a God of mercy and grace and compassion, but this time, God, you've gone too far. This is too much. To Jonah, this was a theological embarrassment. It was a divine faux pas of which he had been compelled degradingly, humiliatingly to be an instrument of. It's like, God, how could you embarrass me like this? Using me as a tool of this grace. So his complaint is not that he has lost his prophetic reputation, but that God's behavior does not conform to Jonah's theology. Are you seeing this? Jonah's attitude here is freighted and laced with egocentricity. He literally counters his word against Yahweh's word. In 1 verse 1, my word, chapter 1 verse 1, my word was correct, claims Jonah, and God's was ill-advised. In fact, I or my occurs no fewer than nine times in the Hebrew original of verses 2 and 3 of our text today. There's a lot of ego talking here. So Jonah feels that he can no longer represent Yahweh. God, if this is the way you're going to be, I can't do this anymore. Just kill me. He prays for death. He, as much as harshly rebukes Yahweh, saying, essentially, over my dead body is this going to happen. Over my dead body will I accept this over-the-top demonstration of your grace. Not on my watch. Himself, Jonah himself, forgiven, a living miracle of God's grace, he cannot accept that non-Israelites should be forgiven as well. The name Yahweh, which is translated in our Bibles, the Lord, in fact, 
it will often be, in most of our Bibles, the translation will be all in capitals. You ever notice that? It's capital L-O-R-D. That's speaking of Yahweh. The different names that are given to God in the Hebrew. Yahweh. The name Yahweh has not appeared in the story since chapter 2. But Jonah literally cries here. Alas, Yahweh. This is the personal covenant name of God which He reveals only to His people Israel. And it is the covenant of God with Israel that is much in Jonah's mind as he's furious and and arguing with God. The Lord had promised to preserve Israel and to accomplish His purposes in the world through them. How can God keep His promises to uphold His people and at the same time show mercy to His people's enemies? This is His reasoning and His logic. How can He claim to be a God of justice and allow such evil and violence to go unpunished? In Jonah's mind then, the issue is a theological one. There seems to be a contradiction between the justice of God and the love of God. He knew that God loved Israel and extended His mercy to His chosen people. He felt that in the very marrow of His bones. This special love of God. And He felt that it should not be extended to the Gentiles, above all evil Gentiles, such as the inhabitants of Nineveh. In their attitudes toward the repentant Ninevites, God and Jonah are diametrically opposed. God's attitude toward the Ninevites and Jonah's attitude toward the Ninevites are at polar opposites. God turns away from anger. Jonah becomes angry. This episode is marked by the deep, deep gulf which separates God and Jonah. It was a a theological conflict that related very closely to life as it actually has to be lived. Because our theology is not just some nice nifty little thing to study and contemplate and examine. Our theology is to come to bear upon how we live our everyday lives. The worldview that we have that is grounded in that theology, that understanding of God and who He is. Now, it would be easy at this point to condemn Jonah. Very easy for us to do that. Assessing his behavior as petty, as vulgar, 
as contemptible, as graceless, as mean-minded, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And, and for certain, his attitude is far from being commendable. As we've noted before, Jonah is a case study for us of how not to be a follower of the Lord. But we should not be ready to write Jonah off too quickly here. For one thing, the Lord doesn't write him off. <laughs> this God of compassion and mercy, and he still continues to be that way with Jonah, even in this. As angry as Jonah is, God doesn't write him off, but rather God treats him with patience and concern. So as to bring him to realize what is wrong. How many are grateful for the patience of God? God is so patient to me. He is so very kind. God is more patient and kind with me than I even am with myself. He's so patient. So kind. He's the kindest person you will ever meet, loved ones. The most patient. Here we see not only the disobedient prophet running away from his divine commission, but we see the perplexed prophet obeying without understanding the Lord's ways. And until we grasp the measure of Jonah's perplexity, as to why God was so slow to act in judgment against evil and evildoers, until we grasp his perplexity around this, we should not be quick to denounce and to declare him guilty. Because I think probably most of us can relate with Jonah. We must also remember and bear in mind again from earlier in this series that under Assyria, Israel had been subjected to severe hardships in life. Subject to foreign powers, subject to economic difficulties affecting daily life and health, a highly uncertain future in which to raise their families, this is the reality of life in the Israelite community for whom the prophets had promised a glorious future. They've been promised this glorious future, but yet they're living in this current reality. And the tension that's there, the misunderstanding that's there, the, all of the perplexity around that that is, we see expressed in Jonah, it was a community characterized in significant ways by disappointment and despair. And it is to this kind of community that the word to go to Nineveh comes to Jonah. Life is now to be offered to the wicked. While Israel continues to suffer a life of distress and eking out a living every day. How can that be? What sense does this make? Something horrible has gone wrong with the basic order of things. Futility. Faith in vain. What's going on? 
And it is just such an understanding of the situation that we must have if we are going to be able to comprehend this heart-wrenching death wish response on the part of Jonah. We've already seen in this story how bad theology may lead to disobedience. Here we see in this episode how bad theology also leads to despair. I'm going to say that again because it's so important for us to get a hold of this. Bad theology, a bad understanding of who God is, leads to disobedience, but it also leads to despair. If the Israelites had not had such a low and limited vision and understanding of their God, an understanding that, among other things, tied together much too closely faith in God with social, political, and economic prosperity, they would have been better enabled to cope with the realities of their life. You see, they had a faith, much like a lot of faith that we find today in our lives, a faith that equated blessing and success and economic prosperity and, 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 and social blessing and political favor and all of these things, they equated that with good faith in God. So when things weren't going their way, when they were in trouble, when things were shaky and turbulent politically, when socially there was despondency, when all of the then then where is God? What's up with God? What it, it, you see, it shaped for them. Their theology shaped and gave birth to their despair. They would have been better able to navigate the realities of life if their faith had been grounded in a greater, higher vision of God and therefore a more vigorous and robust faith. And, and, and that's a concern of mine today as a shepherd leader, as a pastor. How can we foster and facilitate in our lives and in the lives of our children, a robust faith, a vigorous faith, a faith that's not afraid to ask the hard questions in order to understand who God is. We will never fully comprehend Him because we know that there will always be a measure of mystery around Him and our finite minds cannot completely. But as we pursue Him and as we seek to know Him, we will not be afraid to ask questions in order to better come to understand who He is, His nature, and His ways. So that even in the dark times, even in the wilderness seasons, even in the struggles and in the sufferings that this whole season of Lent 
is a picture of for us. Even in all of those things, those realities of life that you and I deal with on a daily basis at work, at home, at, at, with our families, with our children, as we raise kids, as we try to, to build solid marriages and honor our vows to one another, all of these things that we deal with in our lives, our faith will be grounded in an understanding of God that is strong and robust and great that we might persevere and endure. How many, how many hear what I'm saying here this morning? Beloved, we must think rightly about God. Our misguided notions of Him, our misguided ideas of who He is, and what he's like that have been influenced by the party lines of the world and the, the spirit of the age. We must be set free from those ways of thinking and allow God to lift our heads higher that we might think rightly about him. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important and telling thing about us. I'll say that again. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important and telling thing about us. A right concept about God is basic and key and foundational to our practical living a life of faith and worship in the real world that we live in every day. And Jonah's a picture of this to us. He had a bad theology. And it so affected the way he lived his life, the attitude he had, the worldview he had. Are you seeing this? You and I can relate with this so much. And as a result, he had a heart problem because of it. So there was a theological problem, but it led to this heart problem. Jonah's great anger shows us that he was not merely perplexed by a theological conundrum. When he says he wants to die in verse 3, and God with remarkable gentleness and patience chastises him for his inordinate anger by asking him, Jonah, have you any right to be angry? And, 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 and God, we're going to see God asks Jonah this twice. He asks him again in verse 9, which we'll look at a little later. We see that Jonah's real problem was at the deepest level of his heart. His theological issue affected his heart. Perhaps we could say that all theological problems play themselves out not merely in our minds and in our intellects, but they play themselves out in our commitments. How we view God plays itself out. How we understand God and His nature and His ways our vision of God plays itself out 
in our commitments, in our values, in our desires, in our attitudes, in our dispositions, in our identities, in our worldviews. Are you seeing this? Our vision of God affects everything about us. When Jonah says, in effect, God, without that, I have no desire to go on. Just take my life. What he means is he has lost something that had replaced God as the primary joy, purpose, reason, and love of his life. He was disillusioned. In other words, you know what it means to be disillusioned, right? We're having our illusions removed. Jonah was having his illusion of God removed. And it was that illusion that he had of God that became the God that he worshipped, the God that he gave his life to. It was not Yahweh. It was his illusion of Yahweh. How many are tracking with me here? Because we all have illusions of who we think God is that are not grounded solidly theologically. And when those illusions get messed with, we find ourselves in a similar position as Jonah. God, if you're going to take this, then you might as well just take me. He has a relationship with God, but there was something else that he valued more. And his explosive anger shows us that he is willing to discard his relationship with God if he does not get this thing, His way. Beloved, when we say, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X, and you can fill in X with whatever you want to fill it in with. God, I will not serve you if you don't give me X. When you say that, then X, whatever it is, has become your true bottom line. Your highest love. Your real God. The thing you most trust and rest in. X can be anything. X can be a certain possession. It can be a relationship. It can be a certain outcome. You fill in the blank. God, if you... Give me X, then I will serve you. If you don't give me X, count me out. And here Jonah is saying to God, who should be the only real source of meaning in his life, God, I have no source of meaning. You have taken it. You might as well take me. Are you seeing this? Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking today about those who 
are just newly coming to the Lord. And they've just newly, you're newborn in Christ. And, and your faith formation is still very early on. And, and we have these, if you will pardon the expression, we have these juvenile, these milk-like understandings of who God is. And, and it's simply a sign that we are growing and need to mature. But for those of us who have been walking with the Lord and knowing the Lord for years and generations, or we claim that we have. And this is the understanding that we have of God, like Jonah. We're like Jonah. Jonah's a prophet here, a prophet of the Lord. He's not someone that just got, got, came to the Lord in Sunday school last week. He's walked with God. He's had a relationship with God. But yet we're seeing Jonah's theology show through here. God, unless you give me this, I won't give you my life. Give me X, and I'll serve you. Don't give me X, I'm out of here. What was it for Jonah? What was X for Jonah? Nineveh's repentance was pleasing to God, but it was threatening from Jonah's perspective. It was threatening to Israel's national interests. as far as Jonah was concerned. The will of God and the political fortunes of Israel seemed to be diverging for Jonah. One would have to be chosen, and Jonah leaves no doubt as to which one of those two concerns was more important to him, God or national interests. Of course, anyone who cared for his own country would have been anxious about Assyria's survival and what that would mean for them. Assyria was a terrorist state. To put it in terms that we might better understand. Jonah, however, did not turn to God with his anxiety, trusting in Him as so many of the psalm writers had done. If he had to choose between the security of Israel and loyalty to God, well, he was ready to push God away. And beloved, that is not just concern and love for one's country. How many know that as the people of God, we ought to be a people that have concern and love for our country? our home that we live in. We absolutely, for certain, we ought to be a people that pray for our country and our government leaders and, and so on. And, and, and our home countries, many of us come from other homes internationally. And we ought to be a people that love and care. That's one thing. But what we're seeing here is not just concern, for love, uh, concern and love for one's country in Jonah. we're seeing a kind of deification of it. Jonah's giving his nation a, 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 an element of deity about it. There's another word 
that that's called. And you probably know it in a more familiar way. Idolatry. He's placing divine value in terms of godlike value, treating his country with greater esteem than God. Now, perhaps some of you are saying, well, listen, you know, let's not be too hard on Jonah. Don't criticize him. Jonah was just a good patriot. And beloved, I would be one of the first to tell you that we should all be patriots. We, especially as Canadians, we could afford to be a little bit more patriotic than we are. But loved ones, well, love of country and your people is a good thing. And it is a good thing. Lord knows, as I said, as Canadians, we could certainly afford to be more expressly patriotic than we are. It's a good thing, but like any other love, it can become inordinate. In other words, it can be given more esteem and priority than it should have. If love for your country's interests leads you to exploit people, or in this case, to push for an entire class of people to be spiritually lost and destroyed, then you love your nation more than you love God. Hello? And that is idolatry by any definition. As a prophet of the Lord on mission for the Lord, Jonah could have been glad that the Ninevites had taken a first step in response to God. He could have rejoiced over that. Yeah, it was just social reform, but it's a step. It's a first step. And they rejoice in that. Coming to full and complete faith in God does not usually happen overnight. How many know that? Our own stories speak of it. The people of the city showed their willingness to repent. And Jonah should have prepared to help them continue in their journey by making disciples and teaching them the character of this new God, Yahweh, the Lord, and what it means to be in a covenant relationship with Him. But instead, Jonah was furious that they'd even begun to move toward God. And Rather than going back into the city to teach and preach and disciple, he stayed outside it in hopes that maybe God would still judge it. He stayed outside watching to see if the fire was going to fall. Beloved, hear this, please. Please listen, and, and with this, I conclude, and, and we're done today around the table of the Lord's Word. When we, as Christ's followers, people 
of Messiah. When we care more for our own interests and our own preferences and our own opinions and our own security, then we care for the good and the salvation of other people, other cultural groups, other ethnicities, other people groups, those people we consider different from ourselves. When we do that, we are sinning like Jonah. We are not being the people of God we are called to be. We are not being His church. The people of Messiah. If we value the economic and military flourishing of our country over the good of humankind and the furtherance of God's work and His kingdom in the world, we are sinning like Jonah. Our identity and our sense of significance is thereby more rooted in our ethnicity, more rooted in our nationality, than it is rooted in being saved sinners, new creation people of God, newborn sons and daughters of God, citizens of His kingdom, people of the Spirit, people of God. That is our identity. His church. Jonah's rightful love for his country and people and for himself had become excessively inordinate, too great. It was rivaling God. To where he said, God, fine then, take me. I choose this not over you. That's essentially what he was doing. Rightful and appropriate racial pride for Jonah, had become racism. And there's a difference. Rightful and appropriate racial pride and patriotism. National pride had become nationalism and imperialism. And human history has shown what we're looking at here to be true again and again and again. With all of the genocides we've seen down through our history, whether we want to acknowledge them or not, did the Holocaust really happen? Did what's going on in Africa really take place? All of this rubbish is nothing more than a feeble attempt to deny the nature of who we can be without God. The blackness of the heart that can exist in us without God. Yeah? As Frank and the team come, can I invite you to stand with me and to stand before the Lord who is merciful and compassionate. He does not look today upon us in condemnation, wagging His big wrathful finger. We stand today before the God who is compassionate and gentle 
and patient and slow to anger and never ending in His kindness. And as we do so, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us? What is the X in our lives? God, if you give me X, I will give you me. What's X? What is it? What is it for you? What is it for me? 